Hang on. And actually, I did have I do have a quote from Switzer saying, "Congress cannot create the money, but they should be able to create the money." Yeah, constitutionally, they can create the money. Right. And the, the whole history of greenbacks was um, government creating the money. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the, technically, the greenbacks were bonds, but they didn't pay interest. So, so they basically got accepted. They were bonds that got accepted for um, for taxes. So they were exactly the same as bills of bills of credit. The Constitution does not allow states to create bills of credit, but that implies that the federal government can, and the greenbacks were upheld in the courts. So the federal government can create money. Uh, Congress can create money. It can't do so right now, but only because of laws that Congress has themselves um, adopted. So they would just have to change the laws, which is what they're what they do. <laughs> so it's it's when you say they can't create money, the government can't create money, it, it really begs the question of who's stopping them. And it's not a not a constitutional amendment that's stopping them, it's them stopping themselves. With what? Um Basically, with the legal co- the the codes of the, that they have in place, their their current procedure is to let the Federal Reserve create the money, and then they borrow it from the Federal Reserve, and that create that creates a fiction, and you can come down on either side of this fiction, but the <coughs> the fiction is that the Federal Reserve is a private company, which in a very technical sense it is, but all the revenue from the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve pays 6% interest on on the original investments, and so the investments that were made in 1913 are trivial. So if you have a national bank that that invested in the Federal Reserve in 1913, you're still getting 6% on 1913 dollars, which means that it's it's just not it's insignificant. Um, but the Federal Reserve basically collects interest from the banks um, on money that it loans to the banks for their Reserve requirements, Wait, I and it collects. And it collects money from that? the government. Hmm. Can you just repeat that? I actually just missed that last sentence. I heard it, but I didn't register that. Can you repeat that about accumulating interest? Uh, the federal gov- the Federal Reserve um, Bank collects interest from two sources. One is all the minimum reserve requirements of the commercial banks. Okay. So the commercial banks borrow money from the Federal Reserve to meet their liquidity requirements. It's right. no longer a fractional reserve. That's kind of an obsolete term because the liquidity re- requirements don't bear any fractional relationship anymore. 
Okay. Uh, they just there just has to be so much in the till in case somebody wants cash. And then the um, the other thing is they get interest on the money they lend back to the government. Now that creates a fiction that we are paying the Federal Reserve a ton of interest, but but actually the Federal Reserve, with all the money it collects in interest from both of these sources. It pays its expenses, and then the rest of the money is forwarded to the U.S. Treasury. So, in a very real sense, the government is paying interest to itself. Now, the exception to that is that when the Federal Reserve issues bonds, and it issues bonds to take money out of circulation, which is weird, but it when it issues bonds, then private bondholders, um, that debt is real. And um, wait, 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 debt about, is real to who? Private bondholders. So the government issues a treasury bond, but the right. government and the, the and the if the, the Fed holds the debt, then there's no payments of interest to any private parties. Because the Fed recirculates that money back to the U.S. Treasury. So the federal Fed government, federal government issues a Treasury. Someone who has money in there, a private citizen who has money, purchases that Treasury to lend that money to the government. Right. So okay. right. So if the, if the federal government, if the Federal Reserve issues bonds, and private parties, foreign or domestic buy those bonds, now that's a real debt because that debt... A real debt to who? To whoever the bondholders are. So it's a real debt to a private citizen. Right. It's a real debt to a private citizen or a private corporation or a foreign citizen. So when we don't actually owe money, you know, when we say we owe, uh, we owe debt to China, we owe debt to various Chinese people, not to the country. Who have purchased bonds. Yeah, who have purchased treasuries. Yeah. Right, and yeah. paying off that treasury, it, you, you have to create the currency or borrow the currency for the interest, but, but as far as just if they say, I want my money back, you know, here I'm redeeming it, then it's just a matter of moving that money from uh, a checking to a savings, a savings to a checking. It's, it does, it, that's not necessary to create more money in order to for someone to redeem that bond, aside from the interest. Um, I'm pretty sure that's true. When the China comes in or anyone comes in and says, I, here's my bond, I'm done money back, all right. it's a matter of just moving the money from effectively a savings account to a checking account that now they can grab and do whatever they want with. Where right. No, and, no, but no the, money is the, created in order to pay it back, <clears> except for the interest. No, but the amount of money in circulation increases because when the Chinese guy was holding a bond, um, he just held it. But when he cashes that bond in, the assumption is he's going to buy something with it. Right. You know, that he cashed in for money, so he's going to buy something. Now, he could just turn it over and buy another bond. Right, which is what most... Yeah, and if that happens, then it has no effect other than that we continue to pay interest. But if he 
cashes it in and then buys American goods or buys American land, and that's the land issue is a big deal. Um, then, um, then that puts the money back into circulation and has an, an inflationary effect. Um, if lots of people do that, it's it's not an inflationary effect if if only he does it. Right. But if if lots of people do it, then it's a a big deal, and and that that is actually important for two reasons. One is that there are that we do have a lot of foreign debt that people, if they stop buying our debt and just spend the money, then that could be inflationary. And the other is that we are we are one of the world's major international currencies. And we at one point, yeah, we at one point were the currency, and now the euro is also a big currency, and getting to the point where the um, the Chinese is what the yuan is getting to be a big currency. But um, but one of the things that makes inflation more dangerous to us than it is to say Canada is that if people if people see inflation they people internationally stop using the currency then all that currency comes back into the United States well, I don't understand that if people stop using a currency why would it travel well if, if people say like in the 70s when we had our big inflationary period. Right. Because the problem, um, well, because we were, because we had created a lot of money. I mean, oil, oil creates a problem, but it's, it's not, um, if the price of oil rises, we just end up being short of money. Then we create more money to offset that, and we get inflation. Um, inflation is always caused by creating too much money. There might be various excuses for why we did it. But if the price of oil, if oil becomes scarce, it will drive up the price of oil, and it will drive down the price of everything else. But if oil becomes scarce, and we say, oh, we better issue more money, then we get inflation. If the, price so, of, um, if the price of oil goes up, the price of everything goes up because everything depends on fossil fuels because that's what we choose to use our, for our energy purposes. That's what happens. I mean, I know I don't. We don't need to argue because I'm not. What I'm writing is not a debate, but just just so I don't. You know, I don't need a debate, but just to. Okay. The, the price of oil went up, which caused the price of everything to go up regardless of creating the currency or not, because we've chosen to invest all our energy in you know, fossil fuels to be our only energy, and therefore everything depended on fossil fuels, and the, that price was going up, and it affected everything else. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. Okay, because, I, I'm not confident about it, but that's my understanding. Yeah. What happens is if, if you don't increase the money supply and the price of oil goes up, then people don't have things. And so, you know, the price of other things, it's kind of like, let's say we were, were not using money and we were bartering. Um, and I, I grow potatoes and you 
uh, produce oil. And uh, all of a sudden, the oil costs more in terms of potatoes. Well, did the price of oil go up or did the price of potatoes go down? Right, it's relative. And if there's no, if the money supply does not increase, then what happens is the price of other things go down and wages go down and lots of other things go down. So you have big price deflation in some areas and big price inflation in other areas. Okay. And, um, and so got, in, in a way, inflation is better than that. So it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing that government increased the money supply when the price of oil went up because deflation, you know, the, the potato farmer has a, has a debt. And, uh, if the price of potatoes goes down, he can't pay his debt. But if the price of oil goes up and increased money supply means the price of potatoes at least remains the same. Oh, I see. Then, so their, um, their stuff is worth less, so it's harder to pay. I got it. Yeah. And so the, the biggest, the biggest re, the biggest interest groups in terms of inflation are debtors and creditors. If there was zero debt, and then inflation would would be a very minor problem. It would be a problem in that sometimes there's there's always a little bit of of debt in contractualized payment. You will produce this for me, and I'll pay you when you give it to me, and this is what I'll pay you. And inflation affects that, but that's really minor because that's usually like a ninety day transaction or something. Um, the real the real issue with inflation is is major debts and long term debts. Okay, all right. So so let me let me get back to the beginning here. So the Congress can create the money according to the Constitution, but they don't yeah. because they choose not to effectively because they put road they put self imposed roadblocks in their way, and so yeah. Is, how, how does the ninth the the Federal Reserve Act fit into that? Well, the Federal Reserve Act, well, the, the, yeah, the debt ceiling is a separate thing that came later. But the Federal, so the Federal Reserve created a fiction that we were borrowing money from banks, and the reason was that the, the constitutional question was being argued, and it was being argued enough to create gridlock. And so it had already been accepted that we could borrow money from banks. And rather than argue that we could just issue the money, which it's an argument we had won in the past, but rather than press that argument, they just said, okay, we'll create a bank and borrow money from, the, from our own bank. And then to maintain the fiction that it was private, um, private investors had to buy stock in it. But their, re their return has nothing to do with the performance of the Fed. Their return is exactly the same no matter how much money the Fed lends, no matter how much money the Fed creates. All those investment people get 6% on whatever money they put up in the first place. And they only put up that money to maintain that fiction. But that fiction confuses people, and I think it might have confused Joe and Howard, 
in the sense that, in a technical sense, the Fed is privately owned, but the policymaking part of the Fed is appointed by the president, so that makes it publicly controlled. But he appoints people who come up from banking, which makes it banker controlled. And the terms of the Fed, the terms of um, Federal Reserve board members are so long that it's almost impossible for one president to to uh, really change public policy on it. So it ends up being one of those things where it's a political it's a political mess. But when you get into the when you get into the argument of whether it's public or private, but that's, you that's just get into this that's new just a red herring. And it's just a red herring, yeah, it's, as you it's, said, it's, anyway. So it's, I'm not even bringing yeah, that part up. Yeah, it creates more confusion, and it doesn't much matter um, because uh, there's a congressman named Wright Patman, W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, Patman. He was from Texas. And he he's the one who changed the law. And I don't have the exact law at the tip of my fingers, but he's the one that said, look, all the money that we all the money that the Fed collects should go back to the government. Except for their operating expenses. And and that that is really what made the difference because Prior to that, the argument that the Fed was private was kind of a sound argument in that even if they couldn't, even if they couldn't foreclose on us and collect the national debt, um, the interest kept piling up, the national debt kept piling up, and, um, and it scared people from, from actually allowing more money to be created. Right. Um, but really, there should be the word debt ceiling is misleading because the real debt ceiling should be the amount of bonded debt that the Fed that the Fed can create by issuing bonds. And what we call a debt ceiling is really a money ceiling. And if people if people understood that, then all this this argument that you're increasing the debt ceiling would fade away. Well, um, bond bond ceiling doesn't increase the debt, doesn't increase the national debt because it's borrowing from people that already have money that was created before. So bonds don't well, create new, new national debt, but borrowing from the Fed, what you would say borrowing from the Fed, what I would say creating currency, which the Fed happens to do at the command, you know, that cre- that increases the national debt, which you say is, which well, AMI says is harmful, which MMT says is not harmful, but... That difference doesn't matter right now, but the point is, is that bonds don't increase the national debt because it, because it borrows existing money. Well, all debt borrows existing money, um, you know. But the, the well, no, that's not true. Bank, bankers create credit out of thin air, but if the Fed issues me a bond. There's not immediately more money into circulation, but the government has more money. But the government also has more debt, and the debt is to me. But I might not be an American citizen. You know, if the debt were entirely to American citizens, we could have a very progressive tax that would 
take all that money back from us. Okay, but I said American citizen, but really the, better, the more proper term is currency user. If a currency user purchases a bond, then the money supply it decreases temporarily because that private citizen sent the money to the federal government, which they are now borrowing and will eventually soon be putting back into the private into the right. Economy. And that and that transition time is so short that it's 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 wrong to fixate on that. And right. in a way, so in other words, the debt does not the the uh, the money in the economy stays the same when a bond is issued. Yeah, but the debt itself is is the fact that that person holding the bond has a claim on the government. That's that's what the debt is. The money in circulation. Um, if the if the Fed issues the bond, the Fed can issue a bond for two reasons. One is the federal government wants to spend more money, so the money comes out of the hands of the bondholder goes into the hands of the federal government and the federal government spends it. Now the same amount of money is in circulation. But the, they owe the, the Fed, person who they got it from that money plus interest. Yeah. But the Fed also the Fed also issues bonds when it sees that when it anticipates inflation. And so it issues a bond, collects the money and then just destroys the money. So when it does that, it's deflationary. So so oh, when wow. when the Fed sells, yeah, <laughs> and and I and part of AMI is that if we had a good mechanism to control the increase and decrease in the money supply, we would not have to sell those bonds. Now it's like, so, okay, from your point of view, from AMI's point of view, you don't tax to just, MMT says taxes destroy money. AMI, you're saying bonds could be used to destroy money in order to, to control inflation. First of all, I believe that's correct. And then, yeah. second, and then second, that brings up the question, why in the world would they ever want to destroy it in that situation? Because... In the future, they're going to need more money, and why would they want to get rid of money that that could be used to alleviate a potential future debt? Well, because they're trying to they're trying to keep prices stable on a day to day or month to month basis. But what is the dif what's the difference if the government purchases if the government sells a bond to a private citizen to a corp to a, a currency user whoever it is, it gets that money. What in the world purpose is there for it to destroy it as opposed to hold on to it so we can use it in the future? Well, it's to, it's to maintain... It's to, you're not destroying value. You're, you're basically saying we, we, are, we see that the inflation rate is, is, is too high, whatever too high is to that person. Right. Right. We see that the inflation rate is too high. That means there's too much money in, the, in circulation. Right. The and fastest it out way, circulation. The, yeah, the fastest way we can take it out of circulation is to sell bonds because the bondholder is not going to circulate his bonds, at least not in the same fashion as he would circulate his money. He might trade with other bondholders, but he's not going to go out and buy groceries with it. You know, sure. so... So, uh, or buy real estate with it. Hmm? If the federal government 
gets into debt like we get into debt, scary private debt, then what in the world purpose is there for that when they sell a bond, whether they want to control inflation or they need to spend it, what purpose is there for it to destroy that money ever? Because in the future, it absolutely will need more money. And why not have that old money on hand to accumulate it in a bank account so it does not have to accumulate more debt in the future? Why well, not the destruction... The destruction is just electronic, and it can issue that money. It can always reissue that money. So, like, when MMT is saying the same thing in the sense that every time you pay taxes, that money is destroyed, and then every time government spends money, that money is recreated. Right. And somebody else, somebody else who says, no, when you spend money, the government holds it, and then they reissue it. Well, it's the same thing either way, in that, the money, it's, it's on how you define it. Since government is the issuer of the money, then when government collects the money, technically the money has gone out of issue. And then when government spends the money, it goes back into issue. And selling bonds is a way that the Fed can take money out of issue. And I agree it's not a good way because you're paying that bondholder ish, interest and um, you could have just taxed the money out of circulation and not owed anybody anything. So I think MMT and AMI are kind of on the same page in that particular question. Um, yeah, any tax takes the money out of circulation. Now, the difficulty with taxing the money out of circulation, and this is a difficulty I think we can overcome, um, the difficulty with taxing money out of circulation is the taxes are levied annually. So everybody knows what their taxes are going to be for the coming year, and we don't have a mechanism whereby government can tweak that every time they feel like the money supply needs to be adjusted. Right. So and instead of... NMT's philosophy is to do the federal job guarantee, which is a very preventative measure. So... That would that would require much less tweaking. Yeah. Well, the the federal job the job guarantee has problems that have nothing to do with monetary policy. Okay. And, and, and everything to do in, with the, yeah. I mean that, yeah, I, I'm interested, that's it. But it's for this purpose, I, I, there's no time to talk about that. Yeah. The monetary po the monetary policy part. My my take on this um, is that. We suppose we levied suppose we levied our taxes on the assumption that no new money is going to be created. And we also collect payroll taxes that fund unemployment compensation, workman's compensation, social security, bunch of things like that. We collect those taxes. And those taxes are levied every week or every two weeks, or and it staggers. It's different right. people every day. Sure. Yeah, paychecks. Now, if we levy the tax on the assumption that no new money is going to be created, and we know damn well that money is going to be created, we're never in a situation where we actually have to re reduce the money supply. That's a really extremely unusual thing. 
like maybe when a war ends or something. Okay. But um, so now we're in a situation where we can totally control the money supply by simply withholding less from paychecks. You know, almost everybody's paychecks are computerized, and even if they aren't, you can look up a, you know, you can get on the Internet and look it up and say, okay, I get to, you know, I'm supposed to take, you know, $35 out of your paycheck this week for Social Security, and the government says this week I can only, I can just take out 32 so you get an extra $3. Right. Or this week I can just take out 20 so you get an extra $15. And by by giving everybody a slight bonus in their paychecks, you can increase and you can adjust the money supply on a almost a daily basis, right? And have have that real flexibility and never have to issue a bond to do that. Okay. Okay. So so there is a there is a mechanism because of the fact that we tax and we can adjust the money supply in a very progressive way by decreasing the payroll taxes withheld and perhaps putting a, a surcharge on, it's not a surcharge, putting a bonus into the welfare payments as well. Okay. You know, not, not the complicated special welfare payments, but the all-purpose you know, you're on public assistance, you get, you know, $300. This week you get 315 because right. extra money. So there's ways to be um, Yeah, and so that's a very simple way of making the money supply flexible. And I think MMT people would be fine with that. Um, AMI people, I think, would be fine with that. The... Um, the real question, and this is really the d essential difference between MMT and AMI. Go for it, please. Is that, is that when, when we do this and we make people more prosperous, this, do this. Those people are better able to borrow because they're better able to pay it back. Do what? So you and said so our concern. You said when we do this. Please define this. Well, well, when when um, government increases the money supply, whether it's through more spending or less taxing, we suddenly put more money into circulation. Right. Okay. And let's say we do that in a responsible way that does not directly create inflation. Okay. And we can and we can argue about how much we can do, but that's that to me that's the minor issue. The major issue is that when we do that, the response of commercial banks is to say, well, if these people are getting you know are going to get more money, and they're going to get more money every year, then we can lend them and not have to worry about our, their ability to pay us back. And so the banks respond to our money creation with their own money creation. And so the, the, the focus of AMI is to be much more restrictive on how much money the banks can create. Right. 
forward thinking. Yeah. And and MMT, when I look at, uh, I consider Warren Mosler to be like, if I'm going to steel man MMT, I'm not going to argue with um, L. Randall Ray or or J.D. Alt because they they make themselves easy targets by over-promising what we can do with all this money. But Warren Mosler, I think, is very, um, very, specific, or very circumscribed. Moderated. Yeah, moderate and careful. And Warren Mosler's approach, which I agree with, is to, I don't agree that it's adequate, but I agree that it's very good. Warren Mosler's approach is to say, we're going to curtail what banks can, what purposes banks can lend for. And so he tries to um, make the purposes that banks can lend for conform to economic growth better. So certainly banks can lend to a company that's going to increase the supply of widgets because we don't want the price of widgets to go up. You know, it's an anti-inflationary investment if production increases um there might be lag time, and so there might be invest, there might be inflationary issues. And if, if we increase the money supply today, and the widgets are going to come online in two years, does that mean we're going to get two-year inflation in the meantime? But assuming we can deal with that and just be careful, the question then is: Are we really in control of how much the money supply is increased? And I'm not sure it gets very complicated to to regulate the increase that way because well what if the guy what if the widget maker wants to buy land for a new widget factory and what if this uh force on the market drives up the 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 price of of industrial land or what if homeowners they want to buy homes and and the construction, the home building industry um, is able to increase the supply because we extend credit for the purchase of homes. But then what if that drives up re- residential land prices? So there's, there's lots of complexities in there. And I don't know if MMT has a, a grip on all those complexities. But what AMI says is, AMI says, look, we're going to put you on 100% reserve banking, and if we think that you need to increase your lending capacity, the federal government will make a decision to lend the money to the banks so that the banks can lend the money to the people. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, the, the M- AMI's approach and positive money's approach puts the creation of money totally under the control of government but um, leaves the leaves the lending questions um, rather fully up to the banks okay. um, what what they lend for is up to them but as far as how much capacity they have to do so is up to the federal government yeah, I mean, short of malfeasance. I mean, certainly if the bank is lending money to the banker's brother to uh, do something stupid. Within within reason, but generally speaking. 
yeah. I mean, it's, we no longer have to regulate the banks as a matter of economic policy. We might still regulate the banks in, in order to prevent fraud and and because uh, the bank is still going to be lending other people's money. It's going to be lending. Um, the banks will lend from money that the government lends to the banks, which that we the the goal is to slowly phase that out. And so as people get as people are out of debt, the banks will lend from term deposits. So you might um you might have a retirement fund that you start when you're twenty and you're putting money into that retirement fund in long term uh deposit certificates. And that means they can lend that money. You know, if you're if you're if you're 20 and you, you put the money in and you can't take it out till you're 65, they can issue a 45-year loan on that money. And of course, that period as you get older, that you'll be getting shorter term deposits. But um, the idea is that we lend the money to the banks. And the banks can relend that money. They can no longer create credit out of nothing, but they can lend that money that we have loaned to them. And every time somebody pays back a debt, they can relend it. So, so the banks won't go out of business because, uh, let's say people use their, you know, for putting more money into circulation, to the extent that people pay down their credit card debts, um, we have not created additional purchasing power because the 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 supply of bank credits has dropped and the supply of government money has increased and that's the AMI's thing is that you're really increasing the money supply we we include bank credit as part of the money supply so you're really increasing the money supply um by the amount of new money government issues minus the amount of bank credit that the banks, um, when the banks reduce the supply of bank credit. And so um, if people pay off their bank debts, then the banks can relend that, but they would lend it more carefully and perhaps at higher interest. And, and they're slowly paying back the federal government. So we... Um, the number from from like the beginning of the Obama administration was 13 trillion. I'm I'm guessing it's around 15 or 16 trillion now. The national so, debt. Um, 21. Well, it's 21 total. Well, the national debt is like 21. There's there's the total national debt, the national debt owed to private bondholders, and the outstanding bank credit in circulation and we would force the banks to borrow to cover that outstanding credit in circulation and we might give them really good interest rates or something mostly because they have so much political power that we, you don't punish banks <laughs> they will punish you but um, but say we give we say to the banks okay you have um, $15 trillion in bank credit in circulation in the world. 
And so we're going to lend you $15 trillion. And that's a 50-year loan. So you have, you will very gradually be paying back that $50 trillion. And meanwhile, the ordinary citizen is going to be getting money that's debt-free, um, whether it gets it through government spending or decreased taxes. That money starts to build up in circulation. Well, what if he reduces his debts? If he reduces his debts, then the banks have more money to lend because they've been paid back. And if he starts depositing money in the banks and, and saving it, banks can lend from that as well. Um, not from checking accounts, but from term, de- term deposit. Okay. Um, and there, so that, that's the, the AMI approach to it. Um, and the, the national debt that's bonded to private debt holders is strikingly similar to the amount of bank credit in circulation. The other debt we can just replace with issued currency that is not debt currency. And the um, bonded debt we can gradually pay off as the banks gradually pay us back. Okay. Okay, so there, there's, I think, two really important questions that I need to get my head around. And I know you sort of answered them, but I don't have my head around it yet. Number one, okay. number one is... Um, I, I think part of it is just the confusion that different people are saying different things, like Switzer and Bon Giovanni are saying different things. Um, but, okay, number one. Let me see if I got this. At least I'm getting closer. Congress can, the federal government, Congress can create money according to the Constitution. They yeah. do self-imposed laws and rules that such that they don't actually do it, but they right. can. They have the ability to do it according to the Constitution, but with the Federal Reserve Act and the debt ceiling and other things, they don't do it. So they borrow, they borrow money into existence from commercial banks through the Federal Reserve. The alternative is to issue bonds, which just gets them existing money already in the system which they can put out into a different part of the system to do what they want to do. But they also, that increases their debt to the people that they borrowed from. So there's really no way for the government to create slash borrow money without increasing the debt. There's just no way. Right. Because they don't don't create it as far as the Constitution allows them to do. So first of all, do I have that much correct? Yeah, I think so. And the debt ceiling law is the is the thing that prevents them from doing it. Right, and that's just a self imposed thing. I mean any law is self imposed to the Congress. To anybody right. else it's not self imposed. They you know, it's a real law that has, it's a big deal. But to the Congress, a law, including the Treasury the Federal Reserve Act, is a self imposed rule because they have the power to change it. Whether it's right. whether it's hard or not, they have the power to change it. So is there yeah. any, first of all, is there more than just the Federal Reserve Act and the debt ceiling that prevents them from taking advantage of their own power to create the currency? Um, I don't think so. I think the main, the, the main thing is the superstition, which the fiction that 
that when we increase the, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is that we call it a debt ceiling when it's really a money ceiling. Right. And that, that, that I'm not totally clear on. So money, so, so define that again for me. So actually, let me see if I got it. A debt ceiling is a money ceiling because a debt ceiling does not prevent them from issuing bonds. Is that right? Um, right. And it does prevent them from, it, it prevents them from borrowing money that the Federal Reserve simply created. Right. So when the Federal Reserve creates the money, they borrow it into existence. That is what the debt ceiling prevents them from doing. That increases the debt with new money that didn't exist before that they owe to the commercial banks, I guess, who accumulatively created that money for the government. Well, they owe it to the Fed. And and if they owe it to the Fed, it doesn't matter because the Fed... Because the Fed pays all the interest back to the U.S. Treasury. So it's when people say we owe it to ourselves, that's quite literally true with that money, with that debt. Now, the debt that we don't owe to ourselves is the bonded debt. And that's, and the Fed controls that. And the debt ceiling law does not prevent the Fed from increasing bonded debt. But so, that increases their debt to the American, to currency users. Bonds don't increase the national debt, I, I guess. Bonds don't increase the national debt because it's using existing money, but that still increases their burden because they owe the American people or currency users now that money plus interest. When yeah, they, they, when they, they, yeah I, don't, I don't like to say the American people because that implies all of us. It's, it's a tiny percentage of... of uh, of money lenders, basically. Well, okay. Okay. Um, all right. So the, the, the debt ceiling simply prevents them from borrowing more money that's newly created by the Federal Reserve. But that interest is paid yeah. to the Treasury, so it really it, it's sort of meaningless. But the debt yeah, ceiling it's not stops a debt. So the debt ceiling yeah. stops them from doing something that really has not much effect at all. Meaning, when they borrow money from the Fed, they're increasing their debt, but they're paying it to themselves, so it, it, it zeroes out, or it's, yeah. it's effectively meaningless. So the debt ceiling yeah. stops them from doing a good thing, I think is what you're saying, because the only thing left for them to do is to issue bonds, which really puts them in debt, private debt, to currency users, the rich ones, but still currency users. Yeah. Um, so I'm... I'm I'm, I'm, I'm getting this so far. So debt ceiling stops them from doing what I think we both would agree is a good thing. Well, it's, it's, it's sometimes a good thing. I, it might even be usually a good thing. Um, the, the congressmen who oppose raising the debt ceiling, the ones that are economically literate, which is a minority of them, um, will say if you increase the debt ceiling and we spend all this money into circulation it will create inflation. And that is possibly true. The people who say we have an unsub... It will increase our unpayable debt. Those people are are economically illiterate because it's an unpayable debt because we don't have to pay it. You know, it's just like, you know, this big fear that this massive debt has to be paid 
is a fear that's misplaced because they focus that on the creation of money instead of focusing it on the actual bonded debt. So actual bonded debt, the debt that they owe to currency users, the rich currency users that lend it. Right. Lent it. And the actual bonded debt is like about 15 trillion, and the the total debt, which includes money we owe to ourselves, is probably up over 20 20 trillion by now. Okay, so um, we both we both agree that increasing the money that we owe to ourselves is, in general, roughly speaking, where we need to go. That's what we need to well, do to yeah. start to start releasing ourselves from the burden of this ridiculous stuff, which you would say is the bankers, and which I would say is just the shit that we've been fed our whole lives. Yeah. Um, the, the very the, the very least, the part that I think we absolutely agree on is that it's not actually debt. The part that the money that they borrow from the Fed is not actually debt in any sort debt. of sense that, that me and you would consider. It is technically right. accounting a debt, an accounting debt, but it is meaningless because they just give it right back to themselves. Yeah, it's like if I was forced to keep putting money in my own piggy bank, um, that's not a debt because I can break the piggy bank at any time and get the money back out. It's, you know, it, that's not a debt, because it's not a debt to anybody. Right. Um, and the Federal Reserve is kind of like our piggy bank, and it lends us money and takes in money and it does all that stuff. But it's it basically, until it sells bonds to these private money lenders, it's, it's an internal um, system for regulating the money supply. So it's it's not really the Federal Reserve is not really the problem except the political confusion that is created around it. That's all. So the government has the power to create the currency in a way that both of us would agree is a good thing, which is high-powered money, which for you would be borrowing from the Federal Reserve to owe ourselves, which is not a problem. It's not a problem. But we yeah. stop our, but they stop themselves with self-imposed laws, which is the Federal Reserve Act and the debt ceiling. So what they, the only thing they have available to them outside of that is to either borrow, uh, issue bonds, which is to mm-hmm. from private, which is from currency users, which are, you know, 99.9% of them are rich. But so, which is effectively, I guess you would say is effectively the bankers. So we owe, the bankers, this money plus debt, and therefore we give them control over the government. Therefore, they get control over the government. Okay, so I think I, I think I barely have that side of it. So, so the solution, the solution from my point of view is get rid of the debt ceiling, which is just self-imposed. It's, it's just just incredibly stupid. I think prop, 100% propaganda thing. From your point of view, it's that plus the Federal Reserve Act needs to be undone with the Need Act. Um, but either way, it's... Um, yeah, I don't know that the Federal Reserve Act needs to be... In, but the main thing is we would couple it with 100% reserve banking. Right, so that's part of the it, need act. It, yeah, it's the commercial banks. We lose control of the money supply due to the commercial banks. So Because of know, bonds, part of the, right? Because of bonds. Hmm? Because of bond issuance, right? Because they're the ones that lend um, to the government. Well, because they, they, they create credit out of thin air. If I go to the bank, um, if I go to the bank and say, I want to buy a house, 
Right. And and I need to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to buy this hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. Right. And they um they lend me a hundred thousand dollars. Well that doesn't come out of deposits. They just create a double entry. They just say on this side we have a hundred thousand dollars in credit that we extended to you. And on the other side, we have $100,000 plus interest that you promised to pay us back. Right. So that's a private right. debt. That's a scary thing. Yeah, but it, it, but, it, but it becomes monetized because they hand me a check, and I take the check to the previous homeowner, and he, get, and he spends the money. Right. So, so we have just increased the money supply by $100,000. Totally outside of of everything, even outside of the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve requirements are no longer fractional, even. So, so, so this you're, private you're, bank. You're actually, a quick aside, you're actually money. saying the fractional reserve system does not exist? You're agreeing with that? Yeah, I'm saying it's no longer, the word fractional is no longer accurate because. If it was a 10% fractional reserve and the bank wanted to lend me $100,000, it would have to borrow another $10,000 from the Fed. It doesn't have to do that. So you actually agree that loans create deposits? Yeah. Wow. I can't believe that. (laughs) All right. Okay, that's good. So that's good. So, all right. So... Banks create private credit. It increases the money supply, but it also increases a mirrored image of the burden of that money of that loan plus interest. So yeah. it's private debt. Private debt is scary. And okay, all right. I think I generally get that. So now my yeah. question and, to you: is, Go ahead. And then part of the part of the thing that increases that, um, and we see that with with uh, even in the inflation of the seventies. When we ended the Vietnam War, we were lending money to people to buy homes because people were coming back from the war and getting married and buying homes. And banks, most of that increased money supply was not increased by the government. It was increased by the banks. And one of the really crucial things that we emphasize that I think I think Warren Mosler agrees with is that the more money that goes into circulation by government increasing the money supply means less money has to be loaned into circulation by banks. Of course. So the the private debt, you know, politicians fixate on the government debt, but the private debt is much more onerous. I mean, how many people lost their homes in 2008? That was all private debt. That was money. The banks were were lending money into circulation like crazy, and uh, and it wasn't the subprime stuff either. That's a distraction. If they hadn't made the subprime loans, we would have just had a collapse in 2003 or 2004 instead of having a bigger one in 2008. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't that liberals made them lend money to poor people. It was like the banks said, well, you can, you, the banks kind of planted the seed. Why don't you force us to, 
lend money to poor people. You know, that way they'll have homes, and that way we get to blame you when the system crashes. But it was going to crash anyhow, because if most of the money is loaned into circulation, then when people pay off their loans, the money comes out of circulation. You have a massive reduction in the money supply. And that's that's why I say MMT, what Warren Mosler wanted to do was exactly the right thing to do in 2005. Because the banks were, you didn't have to tell the banks they couldn't increase their lending. They were they were reeling the fish in. They weren't letting the line go out anymore. And as the, you know, if we had just given every citizen, George Bush did too little too late. He gave every every working person an extra $750. Yeah, yeah I got 300 bucks. It was really exciting. Yeah. Well, if, if they had done that regularly, while they curtailed the banks from making um, from making more loans, we would have all had more money, and we would have paid back our, you know, we would have been able to pay back the debts. Right. So we bailed out the banks instead of bailing out the people who couldn't pay the banks. Right. It's um. There's a thing in the Bible about that. About the usury. Yeah, well, loves, the, that loves the term usury. Well, no, it's it's. I don't, I don't, I don't relate to the interest being the problem. I, but there's a thing in the Bible about um, this guy who called together all the people who owed him money and said, "You have to get this money," and and uh, and they went out and started collecting from the people who owed them money. And the the one guy who squeezed everybody and ruined them. And still didn't get enough money. The king, um, I forget the, where this passage is in the Bible, but the king, um, the king showed him no mercy because he had showed no mercy to the people who owed him money. But the other people who came back to the king and said, "Well, I got some of the money, but I, I don't want to destroy these people," the king said, "Well, then I will not destroy you either." And um, that's kind of a a lesson for we bailed out the banks who were foreclosing on people instead of bailing out the people who were being foreclosed on. Hmm. Right. Would have bailed out the people who were being foreclosed on. They'd have given the money to the banks anyhow. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Okay. So I think I generally get, I think I generally get that side, which is completely different than I thought and very, very interesting. Um, It's not as far off as, I think both sides lead each other to believe. Um, so the the other thing that I'm that I need to understand, and I think I actually might understand it now, is you said that doing any big progressive programs, universal health care, whatever it is, Green New Deal, would be instantaneously inflationary. And I'm gonna and I'm and I'm gonna guess why I believe that's true now that we've spoken about all this. And that is why. And that is. Because the only way that we can spend big, the federal government can spend big under their self-imposed rules, is with bonds. And that directly puts um, them... No, that's not my... I'm assuming, I'm assuming that we can do it the way AMI or MMT would want to do it. Borrow from the Fed. I'm, 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 I'm stepping aside from the legal obstacles, because obviously... If Congress is going to do this, that means Congress has already changed the rules. 
So I'm saying if if Congress changes the rules and does this, what, um, they what will the debt ceiling? Yeah, if they change the debt ceiling and if they just say we're going to fund these these various programs um, with we're going to fund these various programs with uh, new money. And the NEED Act has the same thing. It, now, the NEED Act, I think, was also appropriate in 2005 or 2008, but not particularly appropriate now. And that's because, again, the, the banks were curtailing. So if the banks are shrinking their money supply, we can expand ours. Right. Um, and so... I'm looking at what the need go for, and it was going to, you know, one of the things was to um, forgive student loans. Well, if you forgive student loans, the students now are not under the onus of paying these loans, so they're going to spend the money on other things. So you've increased the demand side of the thing. Right. And the first thing that happens so is people raise, raise prices because you can't instantly ramp up production and distribution. But that, that's actually, that particular example is not quite accurate because you are not instantaneously giving people their entire loans. You are forgiving future payments, which is automatically distributed very, very evenly over time, over the future. So it's not like you're giving people $1.4 trillion right tomorrow you are just forgiving that debt, and therefore, I owed $300 a month for the next 10 years, and now I have $300 more disposable income distributed over every month for the next 10 years. Right. So in that particular example, it's not instantaneously inflationary. Well, it's, it's, it's the first $300 is. Well, yeah, depending on how many people. Well, it depends on how many people are getting it. Well, regardless, regardless how many are getting it, we're talking about just the first payment of their entire rest of their debt as yeah. opposed to, you know, so it's a much smaller number. But, but the concept is still, the concept is still, you told me before that if we tried to do big programs, it would be instantaneously out of control inflation. And I think that you meant under the current existing self-imposed rules. Is that right? No, I meant I meant under the even under the ideal, even under the well, ideal. under the under the ideal that we do not curtail bank creation of credit at the same time. Okay. So the MMT the MMT half of it um, is that government can create more money. Right. And the so, AMI the AMI half of it is to say. Yes, if they curtail banks from simultaneously creating more money. Why would they simultaneously? That's what I don't understand. And why is this simultaneous? Why is this like mirrored in, in a way? And of course, if that's, you know, every dollar the government creates is now going to create an extra dollar because the banks are going to let. How is that simultaneous? What causes that simultaneous? Well, well, I mean, the fact is that we have inflation already. And so... In the aggregate, government and the banks are already creating about the right amount of money 
for what the economy is doing. Well, us as so if 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 we create more money, then then we have to be very sure that the economy is going to produce more purchasable goods that that money can buy, and that the price of what that money can buy will not simply increase, but the, that the supply will increase. And okay. So if, if people say, well, now I can buy a home, and the price of real estate goes, the price of land goes up because land is not produced, now you have an automatic inflation factor in the, in the price of land going up. Okay. If, um, if we say, we're going to build better infrastructure, and, um, and say we're going to fix all the roads and bridges, well, we've put money into circulation, but if taxpayers are not covering the cost of the roads and bridges anymore, but we're just paying for them with new money, then the roads and bridges have not increased the supply of purchasable goods. So then we say, well, won't the market respond to having better infrastructure by producing more wealth? And that's, you can argue that, and maybe it's true, but it won't happen instantly. Maybe somebody will say, yeah, now that there's a good road to to Pittsburgh from this place where I where I could build a factory, maybe I'll build a factory there and produce things and ship them to Pittsburgh. A much more secondary and, effect. Yeah, it's a, it's, and it's a delayed effect. So what do you do with the fact that you've increased the money supply now, and this factory is going to maybe come online in seven or eight years. And also, what do you do with the fact that as soon as you do that, the guy sitting on that land that's suitable for a factory wants more money for it? Right. So, so there are all these nitty-gritty problems, and I think in the, I think it's, I think the problem with with not the Warren Mosler branch of MMT, but the J.D. Alt branch of MMT, is that there's too much of a notion of instant gratification, that, that we can do all these things immediately. And I think that as we make this transition, the economy will keep getting stronger, and as it gets stronger, we can keep issuing more government money because bank debt will be decreased and stuff. Um, but but it's it's a a thing where you watch the system and you watch the price index and you maintain that equilibrium very carefully and you don't just say if we build it they will come because that's too risky. So I, I actually I actually think that like Medicare for all and a federal job guarantee. Like if you we have tons of labor sitting unused and tons of employed people sitting, you know, working very unhappily, you know, fewer mm -hmm. hours, low pay. So to say that we don't have resources available, those are resources. And they're not just going to go up and buy a house. They're going to pay for the bills that have been accumulating for years. So I, I feel like 
there's a big well, vacuum of, there's a big vacuum of suffering among people. You know, they're changing yeah, their I, jobs because of health care. And so I, I think the jump to say, well, now they're going to put pressure on new houses, I think that's like step four. I think people are going to be, you know, just paying their bills and surviving. And, you know, I, I don't feel well, like it's... I would, I, would, I would agree, and, and I would, but I would if we're going to take that watch and see argument, I would say the more people pay their bills, the more money we can create. You know, it's it's like if they do that, then we can create more money because when they paid their bills, they reduced the supply of bank bank money. So that and we can either let the bank we can either let the banks relend that money, or we can say to the banks, no, you have to reduce the amount of money that that you're lending, and we will give everybody, you know, a per capita grant or or a government job or whatever we do to to do that, we can, the more, part of it depends on human behavior, and I think we need to track human behavior and not look into our crystal balls and say, this is what people will do. I think we... Well, I think it's generally true. I think it's, I think it's reasonably predictable what I just said, that people are going to be paying all the debt, the private debt that they have been accumulating for years before they start thinking about houses. And you just said, well, that well, means that they're going to reduce the private debt overall, which gives us more flexibility, which therefore makes it even less a potential inflation. So we'll have more right. flexibility to deal with that stuff. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm still not understanding an, what you call this it's instantaneous an, inflation. Well, if they don't do that, and we don't know. I mean, see, that's the thing. We're, we're guessing that they will do that. And um, and we don't know. And but so but you're saying I'm, I'm. But what I'm saying is, is, I mean, what MMT says is, is it's possible right now. What you're saying is it's instantaneously inflationary. Therefore, we can't even try. So it seems like no, whether, whether, no. I'm whether, saying we can't. I'm saying we cannot overcommit to creating too much money. Correct. All right. So I understand that. But there is a huge gray area between that and what I'm saying or J.D. All is saying, or whoever you think. So therefore, okay. isn't there somewhere in that gray area where we can put our foot in the boat and not worry about falling off of the edge of the earth, economic chaos, economic Armageddon? So I feel like there is something that we can do big, whether it's too big, you know, it shouldn't be too big, but certainly we, there is something substantial that we can do towards helping the people that would not cause economic chaos or give us the flexibility to see it coming and deal with it and prevent it and mitigate it and so on. Where I have been getting from you, or at least I've been interpreting it this way, is that we can't do that because it's going to cause instantaneous, out-of-control inflation. Well, it depends. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm responding to specific things that the J.D. Alt and others have proposed that we do. Like like rebuilding infrastructure or um, or Medicare for all or or whatever. Um, there are things in that that are worthy for other reasons, but they are not um, they don't increase the supply of purchasable goods that the money can buy and 
so that that raises that raises questions that that I think I think it would be easier to get it passed, and also it would be safer if we said let's take a a um, let's take a cautious pro- approach and say what however much money we can create without creating inflation will create that. Now, the example I gave, which is you just you just withhold less money from people's pay paychecks. Right. Well to to get the maximum benefit of that, and we might we might reduce the amount of the employer's contribution too, because you know so the the employer matches half of social security comes from the employer. And um, so they withhold, if they withhold $100 from your paycheck, they're going to send the government $200. Um, so how do you maximize the benefit of these cuts in withholding? Well, you hire more people. So, so maybe the quickest way to increase employment is to... Um, is to cut payroll taxes. And right. And NMT would say cut them off by 100% because federal taxes don't pay for anything. Well, yeah, that argument, that argument, that's like saying I didn't really pay for this with my wages. I paid for it with my credit card, and next month I'm going to pay off my credit card with my wages. That That's really how government does it. They They just issue the money, which is like issuing credit, and then next month we collect taxes to cover that so that we haven't put too much money in circulation. Well, you know, okay, in, that's not NNT, but I understand that that's AMI. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying that's MMT. MMT is saying you can, you can spend money without levying taxes until it creates inflation, which is what it will do unless you collect taxes. So, no, that's, that's extremely simplistic. That's extremely simplistic. <laughs> well, it That's, seems extremely simplistic to MMT people because they don't seem to be extremely cognizant of it. But that, but that's kind of the general, the the non MMT economists generally say, yeah, you can, you can, you can spend the money just by issuing the money, and then you can tax collect the taxes to prevent inflation, but there's not much of a functional difference between that and just saying, um, you know, the difference between a tax and spend government and a spend and tax government isn't isn't that big in terms of the time lapse. That you have, when you put the money in, you have to take the money out. It's not something where you can put the money in now and take the money out in 10 years. It's well, I, I, I can't. Like you have to take the money out next month because you put it okay, in this well, month. Well, I can't. I can't defend it. I can't defend it that that deeply. I don't know it enough. But what I understand is that's extremely simplistic because inflation does not directly relate to currency creation. So therefore, it is not a one-to-one relationship. Things change. Resources change. The amount of resources change. The the you know new things are invented. So to say that yeah. you know one-to-one. We spend something, and therefore we have to spend exact. We have to tax exactly that amount in the I'm future. I'm not saying that. If other things change, we can issue more money. 
But however much money we can issue, is there, it's not a constant because these other things change, but we can only issue so much money per month and we can look at what else is changing and maybe adjust that, which is what we have to do. We do that all the time. But whatever that is, that's how much money we can issue. And the idea that we can just issue uh, substantially more money than that means that we have to reduce the purchasing power of something. Yeah. And it, yeah, it you know could what? be a actually, tank credit. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I do I, – I, I can't – this is sort of – we're getting into an area where uh, an expert really has to talk about this. I can't. But what I can say, I know why it's simplistic to say that if we spend X, then we must tax X or roughly X in the future. It has nothing to do with how much we spend. It has nothing to do with how much we spend. It has to do with what we spend it on or don't spend it on. It's what the government chooses to spend it on and chooses to not spend it on. And if they funnel it to the rich, if they choose to do it inefficiently, if they choose to do it immorally, if they choose to withhold it from the people who are desperate to have it and could easily have it without inflation, that's the problem. That's functional finance, if you know what I mean by that. That's the, it's yeah, well, I, I think you... I think I was with you until you made the moral argument, which I think is valid as a moral argument, but I think it misses the point. If we spend it, if it's, it's what we spend it, what government spends the money on is pertinent, but it's pertinent if it increases the production of purchasable goods. And if it does that, you know, the more we increase the purchasable goods and services, the more money we can create. Right. And a federal job guarantee does exactly yeah. that. And it helps it helps the many. Well it doesn't it doesn't few. do exactly that because the people who are not employable are the least productive. The but most the people productive are, people well, are the okay. most employable. The, the most don't argue with this point. I don't think you heard the point yet, so let okay. me make the point. All right, forgive me. We always, every employer hires the most productive person he can find. So all the people who turned in applications who did not get hired were viewed by this employer as less productive than the person he hired. From a for-profit point of view? From, yeah, and from a productivity point of view, period. Because no. the, more the more productive he is, the more profit you're going to make. Right. And I'm saying that, and, and we're way off track as far as this article is concerned, so I don't want to go too far further than this. Well, but. well I'm, just, I'm just saying that, that the, people who are not, are, the people who are not working tend to have less productive capacity than the people who are. It's not an absolute that applies to every individual, but in the aggregate, the less productive people are not hired and the more productive people are hired. And that's right. the overall tendency. So and, when but, you, that, but that is really from a for-profit point of view. And I'm suggesting that the concept of productivity should get away from for-profit exclusively, where you know, assisting a teacher, uh, you know, more things that are not profitable but are, gen but are genuinely beneficial to a community, to a society, to an individual, artwork and so on and, 
you know, taking care of your children yep. at home, things that are not profitable should be considered productivity. And therefore, what you would say... Okay. I, so, I, don't have, you know. I don't have a trouble with that as a moral judgment, but if you hire more teachers, and that makes class sizes smaller, which is good, right. um, how long is it going to be before there's an increase in purchasable goods? Because, you know, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Sure. And so you've hired all these teachers and you've reduced class size. And as a moral value judgment, I say right on, that's exactly right. But now there's more money in the system. And where's the goods that that money can buy? Fair enough. But I think that that would be way in the future. And plenty of time well, well, to prepare for it. That's why, that's why I'm saying that, that the time between you increase, the time between you putting money into circulation to hire those teachers and the time when the students graduate and become producers, right? that lag time is where you have an inflation problem. But the, but the creation of more currency and the, and the removal of currency and the changes in the resources and the changes in what we would consider, you know, productivity and, you know, new inventions and new industries, so many things happen between those two points that it almost becomes meaningless. In fact, I think it pretty much becomes meaningless to say that what we spend here with more teachers, for example, we must tax back in whatever, now it's five years in the future or ten years in the future, it becomes meaningless because everything changes in between. So many different cycles happen between. So many different changes in resources happen between. So, um, you know, we're, we're pretty far afield, and, I'm, and this is getting out of my realm of, of you know, I okel. feel more instinct than I feel, you know. So I, yeah, I, I, okay. So I think... I'm just trying, I'm just trying to, to lay out what the difference between AMI and MMT is. Yeah, and I think, I think you agree with it. I think that you're, you're stating it well. You're stating the MMT view that all these other things make that irrelevant. And I'm saying the AMI view is all these other things mean that we have to watch what we're doing. And right. we, can't, it, we can't know how much inflation we will create except that we know how much inflation we're creating now. And so... Um, you know, there's, there's lots of things, you know, my, my primary field, before I got involved with money, my primary focus was land monopoly. And so, you know, the, the standard right wing thing is if you increase taxes, you in, decrease productivity. But all the classical liberals that the right wingers claim to be, um, following scrupulously. All the classical liberals said, if you tax the value of land, your productivity increases because you're taxing the people who are holding land back from production. Okay. So, so here you have people sitting on prime land in the city of Pittsburgh or the city of Boston or whatever, and everything is going around them, and you have all the inefficiencies of transit having to go further out to collect the same number of people because there's a vacant lot where a high-rise condo could have been. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all those things decrease your productivity. So if you levy a land value tax, you increase productivity. 
If you increase productivity, you can increase the money supply. So there are lots of there are lots of variables that you can put into, but you can't just say that stuff will just all work work itself out. It's it's very complicated, and it will just work itself out, and we can create all this money. Well, wow. my view is no, it won't work itself out. We have to work it out, and then we can create the money. Right, and, um, I'm not, and I hope you don't think that I'm saying we can just do it. Trust me, it'll work. I'm, we, you need to be vigilant. I just think it's. Yeah. I just think that there's a much more, a much larger capacity that we can oh. do it before it becomes really a critical concern. I think, and I and I think what what it is here is that AMI actually has more flexibility than we think. Than I've been, I've heard that it has, but MMT just simply has a lot, even a lot more than that. That seems yeah. to what. It, seems to be what it boils down to. Yeah, my, my, I mean, my problem, there's, I have two problems with MMT, and one of them, AMI shares, which is this idea that you can say, here's what we're going to do with the money. So, so the NEED Act has all these neat things that we will do with the money. And, and, MMT people have an even bigger list of neat things we can do with the money. And so that's one issue. But the, the, the other issue is that we need to, we can, we can greatly increase our money supply if we curtail the banks from increasing their credit supply. And, and so the more, However much money we can create, say it's, it's not that we have to always have the same amount of money. That's ridiculous. We we have constantly been increasing the money supply, so we'll we'll just at the very least say that we can continue to increase the money supply. But for every additional dollar we want to create over that limit, we have to curtail the banks by a dollar, whatever that limit is, and it, that limit will keep changing as productivity changes, but whatever that limit is, every time we clamp down on the banks so that they're creating a dollar less of debt money, we can create a dollar more of non-debt money. Let me ask you just to say one more time that this, you just said it, you just said it to some extent right there, which was the problem right now is that the government can create as much money as it wants, aside from these self-imposed limitations, but there's still a huge problem, which that doesn't curtail the banks, and therefore it almost doubles the impact of creation. Roughly speaking, I think it doubles the impact of creation because we can't curtail the banks. Can you explain that link one more time, which is that the government can create money, but it, they can't really do it unless they curtail the banks from doing so. Why why does a dollar created by the government in AMI scenario, why does the dollar created by the government almost sort of imply too much creation because the banks are going to almost mirror that? Um, because, um, well, let's say, let's say that we have figured out, we've looked into our crystal balls and we figured out we can put another trillion dollars into circulation without creating inflation. Okay. And so we put another trillion dollars into circulation, and the banks say, 
look at how prosperous these people are. We can, we can lend another two trillion or three trillion. It's not even necessarily doubling. I don't know how, I don't know the psychology of what banks think, but in boom years, they lend like crazy. So we, we can increase mortgage lending by a couple trillion. Now there's there's two problems with that. One is that you've in, that the banks have you've increased the money supply by what is the right amount, but then the banks increase the money supply beyond what is the right amount. That's the one problem. The other problem is that banks usually lend for mortgages, and even if they only lend against the value of the building, the fact that the banks are lending more means that real estate prices immediately jump. And okay. this is this is down to science so much that the real estate industry publishes what the lending rates are every month and every every point of change in the lending rates is so many is a is like a percentage higher that the that the real estate will sell for. So if if Mortgage rates are at eight percent, and a house sells for two hundred thousand dollars at eight percent. If the mortgage rates fall to six percent, that house might sell for two hundred and fifty thousand. But it's basically whenever the whenever it's easier to get a loan, real estate prices jump because the guy selling is trying to is just whatever the market will bear is how much I want to sell it for. You know, th this is actually really weird because when the mo when the government doesn't create money for the people, that puts more pressure on the people to do private loans, mortgages, right. student loans, everything. So that means that banks create more money when the government doesn't give to the people. Okay, we can agree on that much, right? Credit cards, um, bank loans, mortgages, student loans, everything, payday loans. When the government doesn't provide for the people, the people are forced into private debt. That's fair. Agreed? Or they're just forced into poverty. I mean, well, the, the poorest people, po or, or the poorest people can't get loans at all. You know, the, it's... Well, they, okay, it's, it's, still, it's still desperation of some sort. But, but yeah. I think substantially speaking, bank creation increases bank loans creation, credit cards and everything, increases when the government doesn't provide for the people. Yes, some are pushed into poverty, that they can't even get a loan, and that's crime and whatever, which is, you know, for-profit jails and all that horrible stuff. But bank lending increases when the government doesn't provide for the people. I think, roughly speaking, that's, that's, we could agree on that. No, I don't. You don't? I don't, because the bank cycle is one where at the beginning of the bank cycle, there's massive bank lending because people are prosperous. And the banks say, well, you'll be able to pay this back over the next, you know, we're looking ahead for the next 10 years, and you should have no trouble paying this back for the next 10 years. And we don't care if you can't pay it. I mean, it's a 20-year mortgage, or it's really more likely to be a 30- or 40-year mortgage. We don't care if you can't pay it back once we get our our principal back because if you can't pay it back, we'll just foreclose on the house. Yeah. And and when people are become desperate, is at the same time that banks quit lending. So 
you know, the real estate prices peaked in 2005 because banks had already been curtailing lending. And they were curtailing lending because they said, well, as we look into the future, we don't think you'll be able to pay us back in the next 10 years because the banks knew very well that there would be a collapse in 2008. Um, Then what what you're saying is banks roughly mirror the government as far as how much they provide for the people. So if the government doesn't provide for the people, the banks won't either, roughly speaking. So even credit cards, like a poor person couldn't get a credit card, so they can't get it from the government, they also can't get it from the banks. But when the government provides for the people, then... Then the banks, then the banks will lend the money. Which is because weird, the banks because, know now government, now, which is, because now they know government will help them pay it back. So oh, in the long run... really you, twisted. <laughs> in, that's really yeah. twisted. Because that well, in the sense. long run, you're probably right. In the long run... When people are prosperous and autonomous, they are maybe less likely to want to give up their sovereignty is not the right word. Solvency is the right word. That you know, they have they can afford a smaller mortgage. They can afford not to use credit cards. They can afford not to do certain loans. They can afford a shorter mortgage. Yeah. They can they afford, can't afford yeah. they can they can afford not to be poverty and stealing and well assuming and, that assuming that the real estate prices and haven't jumped to reflect the prosperity but, but the real estate, real estate prices, prices real estate prices are only applied to people who can afford homes the vast majority of people in the country or I don't maybe that's an exaggeration but a large proportion of people in the country including myself cannot afford homes they can afford homes so I don't understand why the real estate market is such. Uh, it's well, maybe I'm just old. Maybe I'm just older, but I, you know, I've lived three times where it was, huh? And privileged, perhaps? No. No, I, you know, I, I spent. I, I've lived here for three years. Before that, I lived for almost ten years in the top floor of an unheated garage. That. Uh, I had little electric quartz heaters aimed at me, but I would get up in the morning. I could see a crust of water on a, a drinking glass. Um, the um, it's not it's it's just that the real estate market um, the real estate market booms. We have these boom bust cycles. And the booms are caused because the banks think that people are prosperous enough to pay them back. And so the banks increase their lending and the real estate people increase their asking prices. So real estate prices are not in the consumer price index, but real estate prices swing wildly with increases in the money supply. And most of those increases come from banks. Okay. Ninety-five percent of the money in circulation right now is, is bank, bank credit. Of course. But you know what? Actually, that's a point that I wanted to make. And then, then just a couple more things and I need to go, which is, number one, number one, it doesn't matter how much money, even if it's 97%, because that, that remaining 3% is incredibly powerful and has a, a dramatically bigger effect on you know it, it, a dollar created by the government that is debt free and when I say debt free I don't understand debt free money specifically but but and it's not a private loan 
it's not a private debt. It's a public right. debt. So you give it to the people, you, you do whatever they say with their, with their resources, and now you have it, and it's string, no strings attached. So public, a public, you know, the national debt, the pu- people's money, that is a much more powerful dollar than a private debt. And the, same, the other side of that is unemployment. One person unemployed is not just one person unemployed. You know, 2% of the country unemployed means that bosses get to get to threaten their workers and the workers can't stand up to their bosses. Mm-hmm. So even 2% unemployment, even a very small amount of unemployment, causes all of the people, myself included, and, the, and unemployment is what does that. And only a small, employ, a small amount of unemployment is what it takes to make that happen for everyone. And I think the flip side is even though there's only 3%, whatever, 5%, 6% of public-created money, I think that public-created money has a dramatic effect compared to private-created money. So if we can even small increase the amount of government-created money by a small amount, it would have a powerful effect, just like a, a full employment would have a powerful effect of empowering the people again. People can stand up to their bosses and demand better. All of them can, because only we, we decrease unemployment by you know a very small percentage. So, um, but okay, I have two. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm just I'm I agree with your thoughts on unemployment. I'm just thinking that you know government creates the money and spends it, and then somebody has it, like a, a road builder has it or something. Mm-hmm. Or the bank lends me money, and I spend it, and a house builder has it. Okay. From that moment forward, you can't tell which of those dollars had originally been government money and which of those dollars had originally been bank money. The, well, the, the, yes, but the dollars are exactly, exactly the same to everybody except the person who owes money to the bank. Understood, but the size of their savings, the size of their investments, the size of the money in their wallet, minus what they yeah. owe to the banks, is pretty clear. I guess. Yeah, I'm so, just trying to, 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 you know, not when you bring in a lot of things like unemployment and stuff, it raises other questions as well as answering other questions. So. If unemployment is caused, to the extent that unemployment is caused by something like land monopoly. Oh, no. Um, it has nothing to do with land monopoly. It has, it has almost 100% due to neoliberalism and the, federal, and the Federal Reserve under the command of Congress because it used to be full employment, but now it's maximum employment. And I, I actually have this stuff documented. I can point you to, I did a little bit of research on this. Instead of full employment, which it used to be, now it's maximum employment, maximum allow, maximum whatever employment. As maximum of whatever the Federal Reserve deems to be as long as there's no inflation. But the Federal Reserve itself admits that there is no formula to this. It is based on the – and there's a, two, there's a study from last year, two years ago, that confirms that Federal Reserve decisions on unemployment, the level of employment, is – mostly ideologically based. In other words, the maximum level of employment is whatever the hell they want it to be. And they profit off of people being unemployed. So therefore, 
our government chooses people to be unemployed. A hundred, no doubt, no doubt. Our government chooses people to be unemployed and therefore chooses the people to be powerless. This is the way that the powerful get to keep themselves powerful and the powerless, and by actively keeping the powerless powerless, the powerless cannot stand well, to the bosses and therefore they one can't of run the government. Well, it's one it's of the ways, but it's, it's a huge, it's an enormous way. And therefore, I agree to the extent that the Federal Reserve is evil in that way. It doesn't change the MMT stuff. But the Federal Reserve does a lot of damage. But they do it because the Congress lets them do it. In fact, commands them to do it because they have maximum employment instead of full employment. But, all right, we've been talking for a while. I have to get my kid is done daycare in 17 yeah. minutes. This was, first of all, you just gave me a lot of time, not just today, but online, and I'm really grateful for that. This has been so different than what I've been struggling to read online. Um, so, you know, I hear I, there are conflicting things. There are some conflicting things um, between, you know, that I hear from Switzer and Bon Giovanni, who are the primary people that I've, you know, they, they make themselves known. Um, so anyway, just, just thank you for your time and, and for walking me through this. Okay. This has been incredibly I'm... interesting. Thanks. Okay. Yes. All right, call so me one, again if you feel like it. <laughs> oh, this has been incredibly interesting, and I'm going to do my best to summarize this, and it's killing me that this is taking so much energy just to create a stinking paragraph to summarize what it really is. <laughs> I, this is, it's been an incredible experience. All right, so, all right, so that's all.